Hello everyone, welcome to Word with Dave Clay. <sighs> Vacations are awesome, wonderful. I think I've said that before on the podcast, it's no new news to you, my podcast listeners. But coming back is even better than going. There's a lot to be said for anticipation, thinking about going, uh, all the preparation, all the things you're going to do, the itinerary, planning things out. But it's that stress (laughs) that goes along with that. Uh, Getting there, making all the right connections, finding all the right places. But once you're there... And then once you come back, and there's a bit of a glow. Yes, there is that depressed sort of down feeling. It's kind of ambivalent, doesn't it? That's kind of up and down. Feeling that you get coming back, thinking, oh, I've got to go back to the routine. But even that's a positive, right? Because coming back to the normal routine, even though it makes you feel sort of that kind of apprehensive down feeling, just tells you how much fun you had on the vacation and how routines are not necessarily all that they're cracked up to be. They're good in the sense of efficacy, uh, efficiency, getting things done, but they're not necessarily all that great in terms of this idea of sort of refreshment. We'll call it recreation as well. Psychology Today. June of 2022, Health, Keeping Brains Young, by Hera Estroff Morano. Both offensive and defensive strategies are needed to prevent cognitive aging. If you want to keep your brain young, and who doesn't, your best bet is to inhabit or design or tie yourself to a cognitively stimulating environment. One filled with physical activities, social interactions, challenging work, spirited conversation, crossword puzzles, a new language, or a musical instrument to master. A cognitively demanding occupation will do too. Cognitive effort, especially with McGunn Young, is the most effective inducer of cognitive resilience. It can even keep some people functioning well despite neurodegenerative disease. Excuse me. Scientists now know why. All across the lifespan, enriched environments stimulate neuronal activity. And the activity turns on a family of transcription factors. Monocyte Enhancer Factor 2, or EMEF2, known to be important in neuronal development. In fact, MEF2 plays a role in the development and proliferation of many kinds of tissue, including the heart and other muscles. In the brain, MEF2 maintains neuronal transmission and encourages synaptic density. Synaptic plasticity, the ability of neurons to grow new connections and reorganize their circuitry, is alternated or altered in the aging brain and is a fundamental mechanism of age-related cognitive decline. 
Environmental enrichment upregulates the production of MEF2, enough so that even in those with the pathological hallmarks of dementia, researchers find, it can sometimes rescue brain cells from the disruption brought about by the accumulation of toxic proteins. Its actions its action seems to be specific to those neurons made pathologically hyperexcitable by such proteins. In animal studies, stimulating super expression of MEF2 maintains cognitive flexibility. It has profound effects on the ability to quickly and effectively integrate new information into existing schemas. Boosting MEFT, MEF2 is being eyed by scientists as a potential drug target for minimizing the effects of neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's. Actively promoting continual brain development is one and a very important approach to keeping the brain young. It is, in fact, the only known preventative approach. But just as both offensive and defensive strategies are a necessary combination on the sports field, so are both important in the brain. It is as least, at least as vital to protect the brain cells that already exist. One of the most important ways is to combat so-called oxidative stress. The brain is especially vulnerable to constant wear and tear because it is an extremely metabolically, metabolically busy organ, consuming a disproportionate share of oxygen in order to power all of our thoughts and feelings, not to mention all the directives to other parts or body parts to carry out our plans. The problem is that after doing its part to create energy, in the mitochondria of cells, oxygen leaks out as free radicals, a form that is highly unstable, readily reacts with other components of cells, including DNA, and damages the cellular machinery. Free radicals of oxygen are especially likely to attack the lipids that stabilize nerve cell membranes, impairing cellular activity and cell signaling. Over time, the cumulative damage from oxidative stress shows up as memory problems, slowing and disorganization of function, even depression. The brain has its own antioxidant defense system, but its high energy requirements and abundance of lipids make it an easy target for oxygen assault. Under normal conditions, a constant supply of agents is needed to nullify oxidizing free radicals, prompt the removal of damage by molecules before they impair cellular operations, and maintain good brain function. Many foods, and especially fruits and vegetables, contain substances that act as antioxidants fortifying the brain's own antioxidant defense systems or directly scavenging the highly reactive rogue oxygen molecules to mitigate the toxicity they wreak. 
Some of the most notable are select selenium, selenium, excuse me, coenzyme Q, and vitamin C and E. Plants are naturally rich in the powerful antioxidants chemically classed as polyphenols. There are more than 8,000 of them bearing such names as flavonoids, tannins, lignans, and more. Many antioxidants are substances produced by plants as a form of protection against environmental assault. By drought, by overexposure to sunlight, by bugs. The peppery pinch in the back of the throat that is the hallmark of high-quality extra virgin olive oil, it's due to the presence of the antioxidant and anti-inflammatory polyphenol oleocanthal, thought to be responsible for many of the health benefits of the Mediterranean diet. Rich as olive oil is in oleocanthal, there's none in olives themselves. The antioxidant compound is created through the pressing process that releases the oil. While the need for antioxidants can often be met through a nutrition-rich diet, studies suggest that an array of situations, whether strokes, exposure to environmental pollution, the use of various medications, or being at risk for macular degeneration, or macular, excuse me, degeneration, up the need for antioxidants. Cardiologists often prescribe antioxidant, antioxidant supplements to those taking statin medications, which lower lipid levels but also deplete the antioxidant coenzyme Q. Clinical studies of high-dose antioxidant supplementation for general disease prevention have often met with mixed results. Nevertheless, significant research is focused on developing specific combinations of antioxidants as supplements to guard against brain aging and other conditions. Welcome as your morning cup of coffee may be to jumpstart your day, it is also an ally against brain aging. It doesn't just improve alertness and reaction time, Amongst or among its hundreds of bioactive compounds, besides caffeine, are, yes, polyphenols such as chlorogenic acid and lignans, known to reduce oxidative stress. Caffeine itself has been shown to improve long term memory and reduce lipid paradoxidation in the brains of the elderly. Studies show in that also boost the brain's own antioxidant defense system. Vitamin C, also called ascorbate or ascorbic acid, is a cofactor for a number of enzymes and can not only scavenge free radicals, but inhibit the generation of them altogether. The highest concentration of ascorbate in the body are found in the brain and neuroendocrine tissues such as the adrenal gland. Ascorbate deficiency is thought to particularly sensitize neurons to oxidative stress. 
Literature reviews and clinical studies link vitamin C deficiency with both an increase in depression and development of cognitive impairment. Vitamin E, a nutrient that exists in eight forms differently distributed in foods, is considered one of the most important antioxidants in the brain. It blocks the oxidation of lipids, thus protecting brain cells or cell membranes. All eight forms of the vitamin are free radical scavengers. Multiple studies have shown that blood levels of the vitamin are lower in Alzheimer's patients than in control subjects. That would seem to make vitamin E supplementation a perfect treatment for curbing aging of the brain. But more than two decades of clinical studies of vitamin E supplementation in Alzheimer's patients have yielded mixed results. It may be because only a single form of the vitamin was tested or that natural variations in patient responsiveness were not accounted for. There's some evidence that vitamin E complex may be more effective in maintaining cognitive capacity rather than in treating cognitive decline. And there's even more evidence that it works best in combination with other antioxidant nutrients such as vitamin C. Isn't that what your mother said? Eat your veggies, all of them. And again, this is in Psychology Today, June of 2022, in the Health Supplement Science section, article entitled, Keeping Brains Young, Both Offensive and Defensive Strategies Are Needed to Prevent Cognitive Aging by Hera Estroff. Murano. Now that was a mouthful. <laughs> I, needed, I needed that vacation uh, in order to get all that out, to get my brain working as well as my tongue. So what does this have to do with vacations? Well, the first part of the article certainly was about what we call enhancement, uh, enrichment, which basically means keep your environment stimulating. Do something, do something different, do something that's fun, do something that's enjoyable, do something out of the normal, <laughs> do something out of the routine. And even if that doing something really is more intention to relax or rest or maybe one might say not do anything, in and of itself that could be a bit stimulating if only because not doing anything or at least without that intense hypervigilant focus that goes with most of our stress-filled normal existence allows us to take in other sights and sounds. It's not that the brain would ever itself rest or stop working, it just shifts gears into maybe a much more palatable and enjoyable sort of context to whatever it is that you might be doing, sitting on the beach, besides the pool, taking a hike in the woods, whatever it is that you enjoy doing in the form of vacationing or recreating. What that does, of course, is it does all this thing, all these things that we've been reading about or I've read to you about especially the monocytate enhancer factor 2, or MF2. And again, I'm going to read from the article, known to be important in neuronal development. 
In fact, again as a reminder, MEF2 plays a role in development and proliferation of many kinds of tissue, including heart and other muscles. In the brain, MEF2 maintains neuronal transmission and encourages synaptic density, synaptic plasticity, and the ability of neurons to grow new connections and reorganize their circuitry. And, unfortunately, is altered in the aging brain as a fundamental mechanism of age-related cognitive decline. Now, what all that really basically means, as much as I might be able to understand it to be, which might be pretty basic to start with, is that between the axon and dendrite of every nerve cell, there's a space. It's called the synapse. Now, with that, all of the electrical impulses that make the body work, so to speak, they're all chemically derived. They're all chemically based neurotransmitters. They're released at that synaptic level from the axon, <coughs> excuse me, to the dendrite. <coughs> excuse me again. <coughs> but as much as those synapses are functional, or as much as those synapses represent that possible place where, where there could be disruption in that impulse, which would really translate on a biochemical <clears throat> neurotransmitter level to the electrical impulse that really powers the whole body, communicates, lets the body know from brain to every aspect and back, central nervous system, peripheral nervous system, the whole gamut of, of what makes it work on a neurological level, that's where it's going to get disrupted outside of brain trauma or damage to large measures or portions of the brain. The synapse is vulnerable, most vulnerable, and since most of us don't go through life with traumatic brain injury or have some risk of post-concussion syndrome, although we probably take our lumps and some of them direct hits to the head, it doesn't necessarily mean, though, that we're going to have organic problems, although there are, again, a myriad of reasons why the brain may degenerate or there may be some sort of disease process involved. What's most likely, or at least with the actual material, substance of brain tissue, bodily tissue, but where there is greatest risk is in the biochemistry. This MEF2 then allows there to be healthy synaptic function, which means, again, the release and the uptake or absorption of neurotransmitters. It includes then the movement from the axon to the dendrite of stimulant or stimulation in the way of some electrical or impulsive sort of dimension of messaging, excitation, I guess would be the word. So when you stimulate the environment or the environment is stimulating, it stimulates your brain. I guess you could stimulate your environment. You could take a vacation. You could do something recreational, which is the point. But once that starts to happen, it encourages much like, I guess, analogy would be exercise. 
And though the brain really isn't a muscle, many have said, it functions in much the same properties or characteristics as muscles. You have to use them. You have to use the brain. You have to not isolate. You have to stay engaged, involved. And then with that, especially if you're inclined to do what your mama says, as the article also points out, eating a healthy diet enriched with, there's that word again, the proper nutrients, vitamins, as the article points out, etc. It's all important to feeding the brain, to making sure that it has whatever is necessary in, again, a chemical way to do what it does best. The short version of all of that is not only stay active and involved, but don't isolate. If anything, isolation, or as within this lack of stimulation, and maybe, again, if you put this within isolation, activity, particularly social engagement or social connectivity, it's self-care. You have to not only stay connected with others, but you also have to, in a self-care sort of way, make sure you are doing all that you know is necessary to provide your body in the most natural, organic of terms with what it needs to function properly. And there's so much to be said for ecosystems and ergonomics and the idea of then are being designed with some, whether it's purpose or intention in mind or just happens to, you know, homeostatic, it's more of a biological, biochemical sort of context, at least for me when I use that term. But in an environmental sort of way, we've come to an optimal balance. <laughs> Ecology again, with our environment. But the lifestyles that supports, unfortunately, in a bad sort of way, all the things that cause us to take a vacation, <laughs> to make sure we don't, in a self-care sort of manner, neglect recreation on a regular basis. It's been so, I guess, disaligned. <laughs> We've gotten it so. Those things have, the lifestyle itself has brought us to a point where we're not in concert with our environment. It's not connected in the way that it most naturally in our evolution <laughs> had brought us to. And to that extent or degree, the more disconnected we are with what we were either with intention or just in an evolutionary random sort of way came to be perfectly in harmony with, balanced with, then we have to do what we can with intention to restore that whenever possible. I want to remind you, my podcast listener, that you're listening to Word with Dave Clay. Now, I've done a lot of, a lot of things professionally. 
Uh, and some of that has been, the majority of that has been outpatient, but some of that has been inpatient work. And in particular, with inpatient work, I've actually been on a behavioral health ward, it's what we used to call them, wings, units, now we call them, and done the majority of my work on the unit itself. And the majority of work on the unit itself is not unlike, what's a, a good analogy there, taking care of personal space. And when you're almost living on the unit with the patients, then it's sort of like living with your patient. It's like inviting them into your house, <laughs> which may or may not actually work. Uh, I wouldn't, it's unethical to consider inviting a patient over to live with me. So the next best thing is to live with them and to try to create in best way we can healthy environments. Again, healthy, stimulating environments. Again, healthy, <laughs> dietarily sound environments. There is nothing more amazing than to see someone who's come from a situation of depravity where there is therein a lack of not only stimulation, too much isolation, very little socialization, for whatever reason, economically, health-related, mental health-related, the person does not connect with their environment in a manner that allows all of these positives that we've been speaking of and to on the podcast today to take place in that optimal, most organic or naturalistic of ways. The way, the way it has come to be or was designed to be. Or at least the design appears to be. And then to put them on a unit, and generally speaking, to be admitted to a hospital the level of functioning has to be so poor. The depravity, the lack of self-care, possibly even as much as the disease model applied to behavioral health or mental health terms might render one at a point of risk of harm to self or even others. The amazing thing is once you <laughs> invite them into your home, on the unit, once they are, begin to be subject to the routines, the strategy, <laughs> the bit of intention, the occupational therapy that might go along with that, the recreational therapy that might go along with that, the psychotherapy that goes along with that, the medication therapy that goes along with that, the idea that the units are not isolative, themselves, rarely was a patient permitted to stay in the room. And rarely were they given a room where they were all alone. Generally speaking, there was at least one other person. There's no singles, <laughs> no private rooms in a psychiatric or behavioral health hospital unless it is in indicative 
that the person would be again of such risk to themselves or others that they needed that. We fostered communication. There was not only individual therapy, psychotherapy, but there was process-oriented, group therapy. And process-oriented just basically means not only a lot of talking, but a lot of sharing (laughs) of emotions, getting to know one another, reconnecting with other people on a social level. We call that milieu therapy. (laughs) And with that, vacations are sort of like milieu therapy. You go on a vacation and the milieu is different. And even though you didn't make it that way, you get to pick and choose, hopefully, where you go for your vacation or when you plan a trip, even if it's just a weekend excursion or maybe a couple hours. It takes you away to someplace different. But you get the benefit of that different because that's the point. It's different. It's stimulating. It causes your brain to have to consider what comes next. Learning. Discovery. Creativity. Again, that all goes into recreation. The milieu is important. But the amazing thing again of working in an inpatient facility, we could control the milieu, but in that same sort of way, the response of the patient to the way that we structured their environment, the social context, the milieu, was just so dramatic. Over a day or two, a person began to become part of the milieu. (laughs) And they started to not only look better, feel better, talk more, (laughs) express themselves more, connect verbally and emotionally more, but also reported less presenting symptoms including depression and anxiety. And should they have been psychotic, which means they were out of touch with reality or not connecting either perceptually or in the way of conceptualization, conceptually, with what's really going on with the rest of us living in their own world, they too would start to become part of, reintegrate into, be more naturally connected, organically connected, and their body showed it. (laughs) Now, was it only because of the milieu? No. Again, there's plenty of medicines that are given at psychiatric hospitals, behavioral health facilities, inpatient facilities. Those all made biochemical changes and yes, there were diets. <laughs> there, was a, there were menus. We called in the dietitian <laughs> to figure out what was best. We also did a history and physical. So we knew what the health concerns were. Uh, all of that is part of comprehensive care. Integrated health. But at the same time, All of that was going on at that organic or more biochemical level. 
You couldn't dismiss the fact, though, that we could all do all of that on an outpatient basis. And many of those individuals came in with prior behavioral health treatment, maybe even prior hospitalizations, were discharged, released back to their natural environment, and maybe that's something to say for milieu, which in and of itself may or may not have been functioning very well, obviously, wasn't conducive to their maintaining the level of adaptive functioning that allowed us to discharge them, they'd end up coming back. Now you could say, well, it's just the progression of the disease and disorder, and that is true. But the milieu is important, not only in the hospital, but outside of the hospital. Again, I'm going to remind you, our listener, that you're listening to Word with Dave Clay. So if isolation or a lack of stimulation actually is so detrimental to brain function that it can bring on all sorts of problems on a physiological level, the least of which is cognitive decline, there's all that could be said for oxytocin, endorphins, serotonin, dopamine, GABA, all the neurotransmitters that are associated with social relationships and our ability to connect with others in healthy, adaptive ways, beneficial ways, that all seems to be part of not only health in general, but preemption of depression and anxiety. It mitigates the effects of, again, on a biochemical, neurotransmitter level, of the adrenaline, the epinephrine, norepinephrine, that goes with stress, that goes with sympathetic nervous system operations. The other (laughs) being the parasympathetic. That's what the whole homeostatic response is again about, the balance between the two. Predominate the parasympathetic, where you're healthier and happier and connected. It's all in an integrative sort of way, not only in terms of care, but in a self-care sort of way, in just a, again, general bodily sort of way, individual sort of way, physical, biological, health, mental health. All of it is calibrated to be balanced. One helps the other. (laughs) When you start to be removed or that becomes disconnected, you become disconnected in any of those significant areas or the system starts to, the ecology of the system starts to break down, then you're going to be at risk. Now, there's much, again, to be said for genetics and genetic predisposition, but even so, predisposition doesn't guarantee onset. What is almost as critical as predisposition in terms of is it in your genes is the idea of stress and what all the biochemistry that goes along with stress does to precipitate, to trigger, to be part of a mechanism of onset of disease and 
then with that progression, and though it may not be able to be reversed entirely, at least the progression can be slowed. There's a mitigating factor that goes along with being healthy. Change your lifestyle. Become involved. Become socially connected. So you don't get depressed. So you're not anxious. So you don't run the risk of any of the other, many, many other behavioral health concerns that prompt individuals to seek treatment with someone such as myself. So when we did milieu therapy at the hospital, returning to the hospital for a moment, when I was part of that, at that point in my career, I do more outpatient work today than inpatient, but I'm still involved with individuals that are in hospitals and are, again, subject. And every time I go in, I'm always paying attention to the milieu, thinking what would be optimal, what would be best. But it taught me much about the power of context. What's going on around you? And even so, what others are doing? And to the extent or degree that someone in the group is taking responsibility with some intention in mind of maintaining a healthy, adaptive milieu. They do it in zoos. <laughs> It's all part of, again, the enrichment program, the enhancement for the animals. They're taken out of their natural environment where it's all integrated and all kind of seamlessly put together, where it's ecologically sound and they're part of an ecosystem that is as perfect or balanced or complete as it could be. And in some ways, although it's more of a microsystem, that's really what we're saying about what goes on inside of our body. It's still environmental, contextual. But when animals are removed from the natural sort of state, whatever is the, we would consider to be the highest, most adaptive, optimal state of functioning. Now, as much as, again, adaptation and as situations and circumstances change, and that's really what evolution is all about, or at least the concept of evolution is all about, that there is external environmental milieu <laughs> demands. But if you don't maintain at least basic core health sort of functions, you're not going to be able to make the adjustments. It's been a movement for a while now, but zoos learned that. <laughs> Moving through the 60s and the 70s, and now 80s, 90s, 2000, 2010, now we're in the 20s, or moving through the 20s, fast moving through the 20s. What we've learned is, as close to the natural environment, as much as we could learn would be what would be most adaptive and healthy, we should do it. They, they create more natural habitats. But why won't we apply that to ourselves? Maybe all of us are kind of caught in the stress trap. I'll call it that. Uh, a lifestyle, a culture that seems to, at 
times be disregarding of what's best long-term for more short-term immediate gratification or gain, maybe we all need to reconsider that. But the one thing I know for sure is to be alone is not good. And another one of those things that's pretty obvious, I could say confidently, is as people get older... As their peers pass on, their cohort sort of dies, their generation expires. As we live in a society or culture where, again, nuclear family is continually challenged, where there's not such the opportunity for different generations, multiple generations to live in the same home, household, where the answer seems to be nursing care facilities, Uh, residential facilities, uh, which there's nothing wrong with that. And certainly with rehabilitative dimensions, health dimensions included, oftentimes that's not only necessary, but that's the best choice. But I'm not sure as a society we are, as a culture we are, as inclined to give serious consideration to that idea of aging. And then... What otherwise makes it difficult for people to live alone? Isolation leads to general deterioration in overall health. We've mentioned mental health, behavioral health concerns, and specifically, as with the article, cognitive functioning. If your brain doesn't work, your body doesn't work, if you're not, again, your habitat, ecologically sound, your microcosm, so to speak, is not functioning, your body is not functioning well enough to adapt and adjust, then it's just going to be additional added stress, again, due to general declines in bodily function, you may not be able to keep up with all the demands that go with living alone, and what's more, there's nothing Wrong. I would not want to suggest that living with others in a nursing facility is bad. I'm just saying that we don't seem to think about the benefits of family in that way. Friendships in that way. And maybe that's the first line of defense, as I believe it should be. It's your family, it's your friends. First. And then others. But who better to care for you or be concerned about you than family, friends? I know we should all be concerned. Am I my brother's keeper about others? We all should have social awareness. We all should be aware of those type of situations and remedy them and be willing to help anytime we can, even if they're not family, hopefully they're friends, but even your enemies. Treat, treat those people that are your enemies well, as well as you can, where they will allow you to. But at the same time, we know one thing, all this that's happened of late to further cause deterioration or disintegration of our society, isolation can't be good for us. And though I'm speaking to, or in the podcast we've spoken to, mostly the aged, same thing with the youth, they've yet to learn social skills. But whether it is worse as you're older or younger to be isolated, 
To be isolated is not good. (laughs) To be told you can't go out or you can't communicate or to do anything that is disruptive of that without forethought. Again, it may be necessary. Health may dictate it necessary. But at the same time, we need to then look at the more long-term as much short-term implications and do everything we can now that the health concerns are not as bad or it's not as risky. We don't have to give everybody a private room and wall them off and shut everything down. Maybe we need to get more involved in this notion of enhancement enrichment. And I think I'm seeing that. There's been many, many, many people who've sought behavioral health care post-COVID, the pandemic of late. And with that, there's many, many, many individuals who've gone into the core disciplines of psychology and psychological counseling and psychiatry and social work to meet those needs. And there's much more available services. Barriers have been removed. But we're still not looking at the social dimensions, possibly, in the ways that we need to, or if we are in terms of research, it's not yet gotten to that more general level where we can see it, consume it, apply it, use it. There's, there's been no public health campaigns yet. Get back out there. Stay connected. Stay healthy. Take vacations. Recreate. Which, by the way, we've not been able to do much over the last couple years. And I think, in short version, we're seeing the outcomes of that. Now, are we going to lose a generation? I don't know. I don't think so. Is it correctable? Obviously so. Is medicine part of it? Certainly so. Do we still need psychiatric hospitals, behavioral health hospitals for those that not only are genetically predisposed, but for whatever reason are bound, seem to already have been triggered, (laughs) onset of a disease and need that level of care? Will they need repeated hospitalizations? Possibly so. Will they need aftercare? Yes. Is therapy good for everybody? Yes. But again, in that same notion of friends and family, community, social connections, we really, really need this. We really, really need that. We need to be aware of that. Not only is it a matter of keeping your brains young or adaptive or healthy, but it's a matter of keeping your body Your health, your emotional health, your mental health at a level of optimal functioning. And connecting with others, being unified, learning together, growing together. That's the human, it's the human evolution. Talk about evolution, at least the concept of evolution. That's possibly the greatest advantage of our humanity is we can not only communicate emotionally, cognitively, we can conceive, think in ways, maybe enhanced 
in that sense of more than even animals? Maybe not. I don't know. But we can learn. It's put us at the top, so to speak, of the evolutionary ladder when it comes to milestones, when it comes to one of the most adaptive creatures or organisms, whatever you want to call us, that's ever been on earth. The only way we're going to destroy ourselves would be to go brain dead. To not understand these basic principles we've been talking about on the podcast today. And apply them. Ultimately, that would be to our account if we don't, especially if we're aware. And would be, be then, if it's to our accounting, ultimately, due to awareness... Now we have a responsibility for if we still choose to not do anything or to continue to allow the progression as it seems to be going, not only culturally, socially, contextually, milieu, habitat, environment, (laughs) ecosystems, all of those things, but the individuals. If we're not going to do that individually first, then we're not going to have any of those things. (laughs) And we'll do it to ourselves. Everything else will continue. Life will continue in whatever manner or form, but we won't. I don't want that to be my epitaph. He knew better, but he still didn't do it. Which is, again, why we do the podcasts. The intention would be to inform you, to enlighten you, to raise your awareness so that you might then have information and knowledge. I could stimulate you to think about certain things in certain ways you never have before, or if you have, add some additional nuance to it. That's why we do them, so that it can be of some benefit to you. So that maybe you could take care of this without having to access too much, any more than would be absolutely necessary of the healthcare system including the behavioral health aspect of that so psychology today june of 2022 keeping brains young both offensive and defensive strategies are needed to prevent cognitive aging by hera estroff murano it's not only cognitive aging It's quality of life. It's physical. It's psychological. It's emotional. It's cultural. It's all of those things that go along with life because they're all connected in that way. It is truly integrative. We have to be truly oriented toward pulling all the pieces together rather than treating a symptom, as they used to say or say, We want to treat the problem, but we have to understand it's all connected. It's not too big to treat. You do it one part at a time, but you have to make sure it all gets connected. And that's what I do for a living. Oftentimes, I help people make those connections, identify the correlations, make the modifications, adjustments, alterations, for a happier, healthier life. I hope the podcasts help you. 
And, and if they do, then I'd like to invite you back to our next edition of Word with Dave Clay. Till then, good health and even more, even better, good mental health. <laughs>